live your life, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now, your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you, Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for Yeah, rear naked choke of Cocker Spaniel, bro. You know what I'm saying? Change the neighborhood up. Conspiracy Farm. Go. Check it out. We have a very interesting show tonight for you. Uh, Jeffrey Wilson is my co-host, as always, and he's joining me from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm up here in Bettendorf, Iowa, and we've got a special guest today, don't we, Jeffrey? We do. We do indeed. Always, uh, back in the day, I don't really have these, not that we're going to debate, but I mean, a mini of night was spinning bars uh, discussing politics and, of course, religion. And it's it's always not necessarily a no win conversation, but you know everyone's kind of set in their ways. But this gentleman, just from our brief conversation of the day and kind of checking him out, very anxious to pick his brain today. Yeah, so I want to uh, preface this uh, before I announce our guest, who is Michael Sullivan. I'll tell you a little bit about him. Look, all three religions and factions of those religions are going to get slammed during this episode, so don't think being picked on. I was raised Catholic, Jeff. You were. Christian, uh, raised Christian. Yeah, Baptist. Um, home, yeah. You know, Baptist, whatever. Uh, I'm no longer a Catholic, though I do do believe in our Creator. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to announce our, our special guest, Michael Sullivan. Mike is a graduate of Calvary Chapel Bible College and majored in theology in Master's College for two years. Mike has co-authored a very popular uh, free uh, uh, preterism, a book on preterism, um, House Divided, Bridging the Gap and Reformed eschatology how's that mike you nailed it <laughs> and he's also written uh, over a hundred articles for uh for different periodicals and websites mike has also hosted uh the living living body show podcast on fulfilled radio and uh, look there's a lot more to you than than uh, is even on here you're being very humble but mike welcome to the show thank you pleasure to be here thank you and i i'm, I'm sorry for butchering that opening i've, I've never done that before <laughs> So Jeff, go ahead. You can you can start it off asking questions here because this is going to get very interesting. Well, I mean, I just kind of want to also give a disclaimer of sorts because unfortunately we have to do this in the topic of discussion. Some of the topic of discussion is going to deal with what is known as Zionism, and when anybody just hears that term, it clearly triggers. Oh my God, they must be anti-Semitic. Off the top, I don't know Mike well. I'm pretty sure he's not. I know I'm not. I know Pat's not. And we also need to qualify these terms too. Like, what is a semi? I mean, that's to my understanding. And correct me if I'm wrong. That's not just specifically isolated to Judaism or you know Israel or whatever. It's 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 basically identifying a collection of language of which Hebrew is one of them. So. You know, which semite am I against? Am I against the Persians? Am I against the Iraqis? So when we start using these terms, we definitely want to qualify them. But to say, just like I said, for me personally and for Mike and for Pat, we're not anti-Semites. This stuff is, uh, a lot of it historically has gone on, and we just got to be adults about it without castigating and throwing ad hominem attacks and name-calling. It's, you know, it's history. But yeah, I mean, just, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we're pursuers of truth. And, and all we're doing is looking at the teaching of the Talmud, the teachings of the Quran, and some of the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, and some evangelicals that I believe are twisting some passages. And that's all we're doing. We're looking at history, archaeology, uh, and theology. We're not here to bash any race or anything. I'll be quoting encyclopedias. I'll be quoting even Jewish encyclopedias when we discuss race issues. So it's 
nothing personal. It's just the actual teachings of these views that we're examining. Absolutely. Great. So give us give us a broad brushstroke of of uh, you know what it is you know that you specialize in your understanding of all of this uh, that we're about to discuss, and then we can dive into the details. Kind of give give people give our listeners uh, a little bit of a thousand foot view. Yeah. So there's um there's three religious views that I believe constantly create conflict in the Middle East. And it's a it's a circle that's just up to this point is unbroken. And you'll hear news anchors say, well, you know, military action isn't what's really going to solve the Middle East. It's really a war of ideas. But what do they mean by a war of ideas? Really, it's a war of theology. What are people thinking? What's What's forming their worldviews? What are what what are their religious beliefs that are connected to their political beliefs? And if we can look at that, uh, then I think we can find a solution. My proposition is this: that Islam has borrowed a lot of teaching from the Old Testament and the New Testament to form their religion, and it's really easy to see when you read the Quran. Sure, um, it even tells you that uh, that it's it's like the third the third testament almost um and what i want to look at is are these views violent um and are they anticipating a end time battle gog and magog armageddon and we were discussing this earlier pat and jeff about the coronavirus and how all three of these systems are saying oh look it's a sign of the end well, I want to look at the teachings of Islam, Zionism, and the New Testament to see how, what are these signs? Jesus said those signs would be fulfilled in his generation. So why are these TV preachers saying these signs are going to be fulfilled in our time? The book of Revelation says that the events that John was writing to, these seven churches in Asia, were going to be fulfilled shortly, not 2,000 plus years away. So those are the kind of things I wanted to look at. The teachings of Islam, um, you know, how are they going to bring about the kingdom? And what are the signs that they're looking for? And the signs that the, the Messianic Jews or the Zionists are looking for and these TV preachers, compare them with what the Bible actually says. And I think your listeners are going to hear a perspective that they haven't heard before and will find very intriguing. Without a doubt, I mean, so just, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to get I'm my brain, trying to get my brain around kind of where to start. You know, me personally, being raised, you know, as a Baptist, I, I'm a history guy. I'm a huge question answer. Um, speaking like what you just mentioned about Islam being um, borrowing from other previous, more older religions, I kind of look at the Bible kind of similar to that, um, borrowing a bit from. Past ancient texts, you know, the Enuma Elish, the Adrahasis, you know, the, the book of Epic of Gilgamesh, the flood. I mean, that's not an original story necessary to the Bible. Um, what are your thoughts on that and how, um, you know, it, I'm kind of fast. I'm kind of fast forwarding here. But just to kind of give you how I kind of think about religion and Jesus, you know, I, I've said, you know, Jesus was the first victim of the deep state, you know, if not if not the first one of the first. And I think because. Uh, Mike, I think history and, and civilizations have come and gone numerous times over hundreds of thousands of years, personally. And I think at certain points in time, we had access to a higher level of, of technology, if you will. And I think human beings had had more kind of, quote unquote, powers and capabilities that we don't have now. And I think that was by design to keep us 
less than I think who we could be. And in my personal opinion, I think Jesus was was a part of that. I think uh, uh, I think his name was Melchizedek, the high Persian priest. I think these guys had had aspects of some of this this old school technology and old school knowledge. You know, I don't even alchemy of sorts. You know, like I said, I think we had access to that stuff, um, and they stifled that and kind of hid that. And I think that's part of why they they killed Jesus and where Jesus was for 30 years when he was gone working with the Vedas and the Egyptian or whoever was around at the time, the Tibetans learning these different levels of kind of mysticism of sorts. I think he could have, you know, raised the dead, you know, cured the blind or healed the blind because I think he had some access to some of those powers. And I believe that's why a big part of why they killed Jesus and help me if I'm wrong here and correct me if I'm wrong. You know, they were killing Christians up until Constantine basically legalized and found, in my opinion, the political expediency of, no, we don't want to kill these guys. We want to we want to work with these guys and help promote this and coinciding that. And I know I'm hitting you with a lot here, but coinciding that with the Council of Nicaea, when from what I have heard, Jesus wasn't necessarily deified saying I am the one up until that point. And it was only through the Council of Nicaea where he became the son of God, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts on any of that, if any of that makes sense? Sure, no problem. Um, there is a lot thrown out there, but uh, let me uh, <laughs> I'll tackle some of that. So in uh, Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophecy Moses gives. He says, there's going to there's gonna come another prophet, a greater prophet than I. So you're sitting there thinking, wait a second, how can there be a greater prophet than Moses? I mean, he parted the Red Sea, you know, all these things. And so uh, Peter in the book of Acts identifies that prophet with Jesus. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says that he's the great I am. He says, unless you believe that I am, of course, that's in the Old Testament. You know, when Moses approaches the burning bush, he says, who, who should I say is going to send me? And he says, I am. Um, so Jesus is identifying himself as I am. He says, unless you believe that I am, you too will die in your sins. And he tells the Jews, the scriptures speak of me. So, you know, the book of John and in the book of Revelation um, both books just really highlight the deity of Christ. As far as the miracles, Jesus performs miracles to teach a greater spiritual truth. I don't know if you remember, I think it's in Mark 2, where Jesus heals a old man. And the Pharisees, and he says, and, you're, and the Pharisees are like, only God can forgive sins. And he turns to him and he says, well, which is, more, which is harder to do? Uh, tell this man to pick up his mat and walk away or say your sins are forgiven. So he uses a physical miracle to prove a deeper spiritual point. Mm -hmm. In other words, I can forgive your sin, not just heal the body. And like when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the point of that is I'm the bread from heaven. You must believe on me to have eternal life. So even Jesus is, um, you know, we're talking about Easter here. Um, even his physical resurrection was a sign of something else, that he overcame the death of Adam, the spiritual death of Adam. The day he ate of the fruit, he died, not physically. That was 930 years later. He died spiritually. So the physical miracles are designed to point us to a spiritual truth, a deeper truth. And I believe that the miracle ceased in AD 70. And uh, you can look at my debate with Dr. Michael Brown on that issue, but Interesting. Very interesting. Well, and a, another aspect of that that kind of has shaped my thoughts on, you know, why these certain things happen 
enter in my mind like the original sin again i think we were i don't even know how to describe it i don't want to say the word gods because that's i don't that's not our pro i just think we had access and had abilities oh, way fine. back you, you you can use the word gods because um psalm 82 talks about a council of gods um and satan was one of them he has a a high council uh the book of job talks about the sons of god came together to talk to God about Job. And Satan said, well, you know, he just serves you because you give him stuff. And he says, well, go ahead. You can do everything except take his life. So God did give gods over the nations after the Tower, after the tower of Babel. And that's that's pretty prominent in view of right. the as well. Okay, so they're I mean... They're just angels. They're not like... Right, right, they're right. They're not like Jehovah. For sure, for sure. And I just think, I think human beings at a certain point in time had access to, to certain abilities. And so enter the original, the original sin in the eating of the the tree, the fruit uh, of knowledge, in my opinion, is that ancient stuff that was lost. And they demonized that. And the original sin then thusly necessitated the entrance of this begotten son to then forgive us from all our sins and believing in him. We're, we're forgiven for those horrible sins we were. And I just think, in my opinion, that kind of just inverted. Uh, how, what am I trying to say? It just, I think, condemned people. Um, and made it more fearful to embrace that the notion that there was a higher civilization, a higher knowledge, a higher technology, a higher ability. Does that make sense at all? I don't know if I explained that right. Well, yeah, the, the higher technology came from, from the gods um, in Jewish literature, the 70 gods that were over the nations after the Tower of Babel. And in Jewish literature, they were teaching technology to these people, thus the pyramids and all this other stuff. Right. You know, on the History Channel, it's always the aliens that are doing this stuff. Well, the Bible clearly talks about the sons of God in Genesis 6, intermarrying and, you know, the giants and so forth. So I was going to ask you about uh, We're that. a little off topic, but yeah. I agree with you that there was technology, advanced technology that was taught these civilizations by the gods that Yahweh appointed over the nations. Very interesting. It has nothing to do with aliens. Right, 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 right. Yeah, for me, it just seemed like a kind of a a, almost a fear component. Oh, you're trying to ask those questions and get into witchcraft and mysticism. That's satanicness. And then it becomes, I think these these terms get, again, you know, you got to start qualifying these terms. And everything's, anything against the teaching of Jesus is oftentimes, and I'm not saying you're doing, but it's framed as like, oh no, that's the dark art to, you know, the more, the more questions you ask, the more you kind of doubt, oh, you're, you're a man of little faith or a woman of little faith. You know what I mean? They're demonizing the ancient text sometimes in the ancient religion when it's saying like, no, you got to just, what is it? Chapter John, uh, book of John, chapter 20, verse 31, but it is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's some old vacation Bible school right there. That's stuck. There you go. Yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, going back to kind of the using religion as a political expediency and oftentimes look at it as like a means of control. Like I said, Constantine, they were killing Christians up until a point where I think Christianity was growing so much. Where, you understand what I'm saying? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know how to better put it, but yeah. Well, and I've talked to, I've, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I've no, talked to pastors before. I've asked several pastors, uh, you know, and you'll, you'll, Mike, you'll, the name of the battle in the sky, the the epic battle that they witnessed. Uh, what was the name of this battle? Armageddon, Gog and Magog. Um, I, I mean, it, it's a battle that, that was already that already took place. Correct. 
Oh, in, in scripture. In scripture. In Old Testament. Uh, are you talking about when Elijah says to his servant, his servant says, hey, look, look at, we're outnumbered. And he says, Lord, open his eyes. And he sees all the angels surrounding. No, no. I forget the name of the battle. I, I, it's evading me right now. But I asked several Christian pastors, I said, could that have been aliens battling in the sky? And they go, actually, a couple of them have said, yeah, it, it oh, could have been. Are you referring maybe to the book of Daniel when Daniel's praying and he talks about Michael battling the the angel of Persia and, and that whole scene? I just I just know it was a battle that took place in the sky. Um, so... That's or even, even references to the wheel of Ezekiel, I think uh, the the fiery wheel or something. Is that kind of an allusion allegorically or symbolically to something like that? Yeah, and, and that's something we'll probably get into is the book of Revelation. When we're looking at a particular type of genre, are we supposed to interpret it literally? Right. Um, you know, the right, book of Revelation right. tells you it's going to be fulfilled shortly, not 2,000 years. So the Baptists would say they'd take shortly and they'd spiritualize that, but then they butcher the book of Revelation by literalizing it well, to the point where Hal Lindsey thinks that it's talking about attack helicopters. And it's like, <laughs> dude, what are, you, what are you coming up with here? Or, or, that, or that America is mentioned in the book of Revelation because um, the woman with wings is referring to a helicopter coming, a U.S. helicopter, because there's an eagle in there. It's just crazy garbage. Right. You well, know, that, that is weird when you when you start talking about interpretations of the Bible. I mean, that's the other thing I've always I mean, I'm not a linguist or anything, but obviously the Bible or the original scriptures were written in Aramaic. And then you wind up transferring it to uh, Greek, then Latin. Like how much meaning are we wind up losing? I mean, obviously, into, then into English, when we start talking about trying to extrapolate meaning of this of this book, how much have we lost necessarily through these different translations? I don't think we've lost a whole lot as far as the the transcript reliability. Um, there are some translation issues, but they're pretty minor. Usually, if you can study the context of a passage, and there's a discrepancy of a word and how it's translated, you can usually figure it out. It's it's not that difficult. Okay. But but piggybacking on your um, you know your thought there of of Bible critics and, and you're kind of a little bit skeptical. That's kind of how I came into preterism. Um, there are a lot of, uh, I think it was Russell who said uh, one of the reasons why he's not a Christian is because Jesus promised to return in the lifetime and generation of the first century church, and it didn't happen. If you listen to debates with Jews or even um, Muslims, they will point out that the Christian version of Jesus isn't something that's reliable because he was a false prophet. Again, he promised to return in that generation, and it didn't happen. And the New Testament keeps saying that Jesus is coming as soon, quickly at hand. And so were the New Testament writers inspired when they wrote that, or weren't they? So what I do is I come along and I say, okay, we have to look at the language. Jesus is a prophet. He's using Old Testament prophet language. So when Jesus is talking about the stars falling— in the Bible, stars can represent civil and religious rulers. And it's not talking about literal stars. Like when Joseph has his dream, what does he see? He says, the sun, moon, and stars bow down to me. Well, the sun is the father. The moon is the lesser light. That's the mother. And the stars are his brothers bowing down to him. And throughout the Old Testament, when God judges a nation, it's, he says he comes on the clouds 
and he's coming through the Assyrians or through the Babylonians to judge Israel. So that's how they understood God coming on the clouds. So Jesus coming on the clouds to judge Jerusalem with the stars falling, he's saying, I'm going to judge you through the Roman armies. That's how I'm going to come on the clouds, just like God came on the clouds in the Old Testament. And your rulers are going to be cast down, <clears throat> never to rise again. So, again, when we look at language, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And these TV evangelists, they screw it up big time because they don't take the steps, the hermeneutical steps that are necessary to understand what kind of language is being used. When you does say sense? hermetical, what, what, does that, what does that mean exactly? Is that Hermes? Her, or? Hermit. Hermeneutics is just the science of interpretation. Okay. You ask the text. You ask the text basic things: who, what, when, where questions. So, you know, if I'm interpreting the Book of Revelation, who? Well, John is writing seven historical churches. He's not writing me. Writing to me. What? It's about the second coming. It's about a judgment upon a particular city in Revelation 11. Eight. It's the city where the Lord was crucified. Okay. And he likens that city to Egypt, to Babylon. And so what God is saying is Israel has become so apostate that she is now identified with all of her Old Testament enemies. And so God is going to judge this city, Old Covenant Jerusalem, in a shortly, quickly, at-hand time frame. And he connects the judgment of that city with the resurrection and judgment of the dead. And so throughout the book of Revelation... You have him coming quickly. That's about the destruction of this city. And a harlot. There's a harlot that sits on a beast. Well, the harlot is guilty of killing the prophets. So the harlot is, again, Old Covenant Israel. You can read the Old Testament. Many times when Israel breaks the covenant, she's called a harlot. And so in Revelation, she's the harlot. She's sitting on the beast. Rome is the beast. All right? Rome is the sea beast. Um... Israel is the land beast, and they come together and they persecute the church. And the Battle of Armageddon is simply, you know, when uh, Vespasian and Titus surround Jerusalem. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you want a sign when the end is going to be? He says, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, know that the end is near. And when the gospel is preached throughout the world, know that the end is near. Now, I get people all the time saying, I've got you. When was the gospel preached in all the world before A.D. 70? It's really easy to prove that it was. Paul uses the same Greek words that Jesus uses. And he says in Colossians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 16 that the gospel had been preached in all the world. But again, when we look at world in our English language, we think of the globe, right? Every nation on the globe. But I'll give you an example. In the book of Acts, um, uses the same Greek word, oikimene, that Caesar taxed the whole world. Well, did Caesar tax the globe? No. The Roman Empire. Paul preached the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. So Paul said he had preached the gospel to the world, to every creature under heaven, Paul says. So Paul uses every Greek word Jesus uses for the Great Commission and says this is a sign that has been fulfilled. That's why Paul has this imminent expectation of the coming of the Lord. And as far as the second major sign, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but the second major sign is, he says, okay, you, you disciples want to know when the destruction of the temple is, 
the end of the old covenant age and, and the coming of the Lord, what's well, going to happen when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem? In AD 67, Rome surrounded Jerusalem. But Eusebius records, for some strange reason, they retreated and, and, they, and they went away. At that time, the Christians left Jerusalem. There were a bunch of false prophets in Jerusalem that said, no, stay, stay. God's going to deliver us from the Romans. The kingdom's going to be here. Because remember, they had a physical, militaristic idea of the kingdom. Jesus said, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. It's within you. So at that point, the Christians remembered the prophecy, left the city, fled to Pella, and were safe. Then Rome came back, and for three and a half years, they assaulted that city. The zealots were in the city and destroyed it as well. And that is the event that Jesus is referring to. He's not talking about some rebuilt temple in the future that you see these crackpots talking about on TV. Oh, you know, the Jews are going to rebuild the temple and, uh, you know, Armageddon's going to be here. No, that last day's war was when Rome, the Roman army, they got the best men from every nation they conquered. So when Rome is surrounding Jerusalem, that's the nations of the known world surrounding that city. And that is what the Battle of Armageddon or Gog and Magog really is. No. So with that being said, Mike, with that being said, then what we're what we're witnessing now, as far as we've already seen, you know, the two uh, two world wars, and they talk of the third being the, the final the final ultimate uh, battle, and technically Armageddon. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, then? Given you know we know of the two world wars that have already happened, and many fear we're getting close to a third world war potentially with China, with the media and everyone else vilifying China for uh, potentially releasing this virus on purpose. Right, and it seems like every generation um, takes the modern current events and tries to squeeze them into these passages. Sure, sure. I mean, you could get through that, Hitler, Stalin, I mean. Absolutely. Um, and so that's the funny thing is, you know, we're talking about the coronavirus, and it's supposed to be a sign within Islam, Zionists, and evangelicals that this is a sign of the end, where we know that 30,000, according to Tacitus, 30,000 people died throughout the Roman Empire um, in in autumn of 65. I mean, why isn't that a sign? You know, Jesus limits the signs to a specific generation. He says, this generation will not pass away till all of these things are fulfilled. It's really easy to understand what this generation means because he uses right. it elsewhere. He says, this generation is going to crucify the Son of Man. Well, that's there not a future generation, right? Right. So yeah. um, it's all limited to a, a specific time frame. That's okay. where I address most of all the false teaching, whether it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, whatever. I always get back to... If I'm, you know, debating or interacting with a Jew, I go back to the New Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus is Messiah and the AD 70 is a fulfillment of that as well. Because they believe in some of their literature, they say, if Messiah didn't come before AD 70, we don't know if he's ever going to come. Because they knew that the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks, that it would culminate in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Well, Jesus is the perfect candidate. <laughs> he shows up. During the time of Rome, which Daniel predicts, it's the fourth kingdom, he, he talks about establishing a spiritual kingdom, which is what Daniel says, um, and 
it, it's a literal 490 years. Between 420 and 8070 is 490 years. And you got to calculate that with the Jewish calendar, not the Gentile calendar. Uh, so they started in 420 with the destruction of the first temple and to the second is a literal 490 years. So Jesus is the perfect candidate for the Messiah. And he prophesied um, what Daniel said as well. Very interesting. Okay. And isn't there, um, I mean, pushing back, I guess, the return isn't a part of uh, the potential return of Jesus, the destruction of the the, the Islamic Temple Mount that's in uh, Israel? Well, the, I don't know if that's... Evangelicals, their, their understanding of the second coming, um, yeah, they, they believe that the temple needs to be rebuilt. That's why you see, you'll see guys like John Hagee and uh, Hal Lindsey always giving money and lobbying for Israel. Um, and they get excited about war in the Middle East because they think that that's going to cause them to be raptured. So they don't have a problem, you know, um, buying airline tickets for Jews to go and live in Israel because they want two-thirds of them to die in a tribulation, which the tribulation, again, was between 80, 67, and 70. But they just butcher these texts. That's interesting. And yeah. So, and something I've always, I've, uh, like I said, you're way deeper into it as far as understanding this than I am, but I've always had kind of a rudimentary understanding, and I never thought of the Bible, I looked at it as like a book of, of faith, not necessarily fact. I never looked at it necessarily as a historical or archaeological um, a text, if you will. Again, some, a sticking point for me, and clear this up for me, who wrote the Gospels? There's this, there's, there's speculation that it wasn't necessarily written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or Revelation wasn't even written uh, by John, and and they were written, from my understanding, 10, 20, 30 years after Jesus died. So were they necessarily contemporaries of Jesus? Help me out. Oh, absolutely, contemporaries of Jesus. Uh, Luke, in the very beginning of Luke, and in the book of Acts as well, he tells the offices, he says, I am writing to you about the historical accounts of Jesus, right? Um, so they, they spell it out really clear who the author is and why, why they're writing. I don't see any exegetical reasons to discount that unless there's a, a presupposition that might be put upon the text where, well, I don't believe in, this, in a, um, a miraculous worldview, therefore I have to have the gospel being written after AD 70. That would be part of my response. The other part of response of the temple as something that's it's it hasn't happened. If the if they're writing post AD seventy, they would be writing about the destruction of the temple because that is the biggest thing in their worldview. That temple is the center of their religion. So if the book of Revelation is written post AD seventy, why is why is God telling John to measure the temple? Um, why isn't the book of Revelation already talking about it as a past event? Um, so I just don't see anything in the text themselves which would cause me to question that these aren't the authors who the book says. Okay. They are. But, okay. So what, what I want to do is fast forward into, I want to stick with, you know, we've done a lot of historical um, Turn talk, your phone off, for God's sakes. <laughs> talk about, I want to talk about uh, what, we're, what we're going through now and and you've already named a few, uh, a few folks, but out of all three religions, you know, that we're talking about mainly in terms of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, which individuals from each of those 
religions, the most powerful people that are pushing for this almost end times prophecy to be fulfilled? Uh, I forget the guy. I have it in my. I have his name in one of my articles. But there's a guy that's on TV uh, in the Middle East. He's a he's a Muslim, but he's kind of like the Hal Lindsey of the Muslim world. And yeah. he's constantly saying every civil war in Syria is a sign that Jesus and the Mahdi is alive, ready to reveal themselves. Um, you know, and then in uh, Jewish thought, there's Messianic Judaism, which believes. Oh, let me see if I can find a quote. based on your the factions within the religions okay well let's start with let's start with Islam we'll start with Islam we'll go to Zionism and then we'll go to like Christian evangelical like what you were brought up with Jeff okay uh, let's just let's break it down like that is that okay yeah sure okay so uh, again talking about the violence is do these religions promote violence I would say yes the evangelicals indirectly because they support Israel, but their kingdom manifestation is to steal land from Palestinians. And if that means killing, they're up with that. So if you financially support Israel, you're indirectly supporting violence and war. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. So Islam has, uh, you know, they believe that they're signs of the end as well. Natural disasters, earthquakes, the coronavirus, so far, so forth. Um, they believe that there's going to be a Jewish false messiah that will show up. He's supposed to be the Antichrist. And you'll notice, like, the, the Islam's deliverer is the Christians and the Jews' Antichrist, and vice versa. For Islam, when they're looking at Zionism and evangelical Zionism, and they're talking about their version of the second coming. Islam saying, oh, that's the Antichrist. So you can see the circular just nightmare that this is, you see it? Yeah. It's promoting whatever, well, whatever it's, fits it's their self, narrative. It, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling. It, but, you, go ahead, but, but if the man of sin was actually alive in Paul's day, which if you read Thessalonians, Paul says, that the restrainer is restraining the man of sin. In other words, the man of sin was already alive in Paul's day. He was either the high priest or probably Nero, one of those. It was a contemporary figure. Now, is this dude like really old? You know, I mean, is, is the man of sin or the Antichrist this old? Because he was alive in Paul's day. So I don't understand why these guys are looking for this anti. First of all, Antichrist comes from 1 John. He says there are many Antichrists. And those are the Judaizers, actually, that were trying to get Christians back under the law. But the man of sin, who a lot of people think is this Antichrist, Paul says he was already alive in his day. So that's why, again, Paul has this imminent expectation of the second coming. So is the man of sin 2,000 years old? I don't think so. Who was, who, at that time then, who was the Antichrist? Well, the man of well, the Antichrist, there are many Antichrists, John Sure, said. but... So at that I, time, then. I would if say that, that was... would be the Judaizers, but the man of sin is probably, you don't know because he doesn't tell you, but uh, he was alive during the time Paul wrote, so he was probably a zealot leader, or he was a uh, the high priest, or he was Nero. Those are the only three candidates that I can kind of think of that would fit what Paul was saying. 
Okay. Something I've always also wondered about, I mean, those, like you said, those History Channel documentaries, which are always pretty fascinating. Um, well, were there certain books that were removed, you know, the book of Ruth or what, whichever books that were removed from the Bible? And what was the rationale for that? And I got another question, obviously. <laughs> you are all over the place, bro. I just, I mean, because you're, you're all over it. And I'm just like, I don't, I, I, well, I, I have a thing with, I go to people who I know I can rely on their information and clearly you've done your homework. So it's like, I just want to pick the brain of someone very knowledgeable. Well, I'm not a, I'm not a textual critic. Like my area of expertise is eschatology, like what we're talking about now. But you're bringing up like textual criticism issues. I would refer you to guys like James White, who debates Muslims on a constant basis when it comes to textual criticism. Are the New Testament documents reliable? Um, Not so much criticism of the text necessarily, but of books that might have been removed or some like, oh, we'll put that one in, we'll pull those out. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just some criticism. Well, uh, yeah, a, a good, the only one that I see, oops, someone's calling me here. Uh, can you see me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. No, it's all good. We, we don't really. Okay. Yeah. Um, would be the book of Enoch. There. Um, some have thought that the book of Enoch should be in the New Testament canon. There's some good, good arguments for that. Um, and there's some bad arguments for that. But that would be the only one I see. You know, some of these other gospels, Gospel of Thomas, or some of these other ones, just they're so far out there. They don't. They don't fall in line or, or harmonize with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so there, there, you can be objective. You can read these documents and say, ah, eh, that, that, that doesn't seem to fit. I mean, that would be kind of my hmm. my answer in a nutshell. Well, and then the, the I mean, hopefully you can, the Dead Sea Scrolls, was that, what was exactly that? Yes. And the, does that jive? I love, the, I love the Dead Sea Scrolls, man, um, because they really support and they bring to light a lot of things. Let me give an example. Um, 11 Q Melchizedek. They're, prof- they're looking for Messiah to come. And they believe that the end time war is going to, this is probably the Essenes. They believe the end time war, the battle of Armageddon, Gog and Magog, Magog is going to be between Rome and the apostate leadership of the Pharisees. Right? So they're anticip- and they're anticipating this based upon Daniel's prediction. All right? because they know they're in the the you know the 10th jubilee and so it's cool because that matches new testament eminence because the new testament is saying the battle of armageddon is going to take place in our generation the dead the dead sea scrolls corroborate that they say the same thing here's the problem with the essenes so rome surrounds jerusalem well it decimates all the other areas outside of jerusalem the Essene community, they were almost annihilated. Well, they they hate the Pharisees. They hate the people that are in Jerusalem because they believe they're apostates. But they go to Jerusalem anyway, and they're still holding out this mindset that the end-time battle, somehow God is going to use Rome. to God's going to destroy Rome. God's <clears throat> going to destroy the Pharisees, and they're gonna, God's going to establish the Essenes as the children of light. Right. Well, that doesn't happen. I, I can I can imagine the Essenes coming into Jerusalem just as the Christians are leaving. <laughs> you know, the Christians are leaving because of what Jesus prophesied. And he said, he said, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, leave, 
they're leaving, the Essenes are coming to Jerusalem, and they get caught into destruction and judgment as well because they have rejected Christ as well. The Essenes, so were they Jesus the early said, you know, Christians? I don't know if I remember in Western Civ class in college. Were they supposedly the early? I wouldn't say they were the Christians. A, a, a lot of people believe like John the Baptist was an Essene. Um, they were kind of these outskirts. They were kind of in the desert. They're, they're kind of on the outskirts. Um, they didn't fit in with the religion of the Pharisees. They didn't They didn't believe that. Um, so that that's kind of where they came from. That was their worldview. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, the point of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they had this this eminence of the last day war and they believed that the last day war was between rome and and jerusalem and that's exactly how the book of revelation lays it out that's exactly what jesus teaches in the olivet discourse verbatim wow well let me ask you you got i mean i don't know how many christians there are i'm not sure how many people practice judaism i think there's a, some a billion plus muslims all of them swear they got it down. They know what's up. Who's right? And why is, why are you, I'm not, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, like, how do you know you're right? But if you can articulate why you feel your particular brand of practicing religion, you know, happens to be Christianity, et cetera. Why is that one right and the other ones are wrong? Or if not wrong, why are they, you know what I mean? Right. Well, I think it just comes down to, you know, there's three passages. I'll break them down for you. They're called the big three. Uh, when liberal skeptics are looking at the Bible, and when, you know, evangelicals or whoever, there, there's big, there's three passages. One's in Matthew 10, verses 22 and 23. Jesus tells the disciples, he says, you will not finish going through the tribes of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay. So he's basically saying, you know, you're going to be persecuted and you're not going to run out of cities to flee to before the Son of Man comes. So on the surface, it sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm going to come in some of your lifetimes. Matthew 16, 27, 28 is even more specific. He says, For the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each man according to his work. And then right after that, pay attention to this. He says, Verily I say unto you, those that are standing here, he says, Verily I say unto you, there are some standing here who will not die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some of them are going to die, but some of them are going to live to witness this event. Then you go to Matthew 24. He makes it even clearer. He says, this generation will not pass away until all of this is fulfilled. Now, if you're a liberal skeptic, you say, I got you. The world didn't end in AD 70. So what world ended? Again, Jesus is prophesying the end of an age. The disciples ask about the end of the age. Not the end of world history. It's the end of the old covenant age when the temple is destroyed. That's the whole context. They're looking at the temple. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone is going to be left upon another. That triggers their thinking. Wow, this must be the end. The end of what? The end of their age. Mm. The old covenant age. The new covenant age hadn't even started yet. Jesus hadn't even died to inaugurate the new covenant. So that's not. So to the long or the short answer to your question is I look at these passages and I have to ask myself, what are the context? What, what are the meanings of these words? And so I understand why the skeptic says what he says, but he never takes the time to realize that Jesus isn't prophesying the end of world history. He's prophesying about the end of the old covenant age. And that would be within their generation. Well, why is it? 
I mean, well, obviously with the huge numbers of, of people who practice Judaism and Islam, why? What is it about those guys' particular brand that rejects Jesus as the Christ? Islam acknowledges Jesus as a prophet, etc. But what is it about the, you know what I mean, the Christ aspect, the almost deification aspect that those two particular brands reject? And why do you think that is? Well, you know, I can't really answer for them. I mean, God has always had a remnant. I mean, even in the Old Testament, um, even within Israel itself, uh, most of Israel would would treat the poor harshly. Uh, they would charge interest to their own brethren. They were breaking Torah. And the, the minority view are always mostly poor people that, that were truly faithful to Yahweh. And so I see this throughout church history, you know, even the Protestant Reformation. Um, you know, I mean, the world's going to be around for a long time. And, and God has a timetable of his own, you know, to, to, to reveal what truth he wants to along the way. And it's just my job. I can't speak to other people. I can just speak for myself. Right. You know, I want to look at the text. I want to look at the context. I want to look at the meaning of these Greek words. And, you know, I believe that in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the faithful and true witness. Well, if he didn't come soon and quickly and at hand and in their generation, he's not a faithful and true witness. You might as well throw out the deity of Christ. You might as well say Jesus is a false prophet and throw away the Bible if it wasn't fulfilled when it says it was fulfilled. So now you have to change your thinking between you know what you were taught as a Baptist and, okay, when I look at the Old Testament, how does God come on the clouds? Oh, he came through the Assyrian army to take Jerusalem, the Jews captive into Babylon or the Babylonians, so forth. Um, so you look at this language, and now you have to allow Scripture to interpret itself, and then th the pieces of the puzzle start coming together. And before I heard this view, the pieces weren't coming together. <laughs> there was all kinds of problems. It's so very fascinating because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, all three of these religions essentially spawn from Abraham. So you have this huge family fight that's been going on for centuries. You know what I mean? It's like a horrible reality show with this dysfunctional family. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we get into uh, the modern state of Israel? And this is kind of the rubber meets the road here. All right. So, sure. um, we can kind of we can go in a lot of different directions. The Rothschilds, um, but let's Benjamin Netanyahu looks at Ezekiel 37, and he believes that that, that 1948 was a fulfillment of that prophecy. All of your quote-unquote prophecy TV evangelical experts will say the same thing. 1948 was a fulfillment of prophecy. Here's the problem. You go to those passages, and in context, they're dealing with, with Israel coming back into the land under Ezra and Nehemiah. It's got nothing to do with 1948. But they twist it to make it so. So who are these Jews that have taken over Palestine? Um, while I'm, let me read you some encyclopedias. Let me start with the Encyclopedia Judaic Jerusalem, 1971. It is a common assumption and one that sometimes seems irreducible, unable to change, even in the face of evidence to the contrary, that the Jews of today constitute a race. All right? And it goes on, it says, despite this, many people readily accept the notion that they are a distinct race. The Jewish encyclopedia is telling you 
there is no such thing as a Jewish race. A Jew is someone who embraces Judaism. All right, let me go on. The American People's Encyclopedia, 1954. In the year 740 AD, the Khazars. Pat, you got an echo going on, buddy. Yeah, there's a little echo. Yeah, turn your phone off. In the year 740 AD, the Khazars were officially converted to Judaism. A century later, they were crushed by the incoming Slavic-speaking people and were scattered over Central Europe, where they were known as Jews. The Encyclopedia Britannica, 1973. The findings of physical anthropology show that contrary to the popular view, there is no Jewish race. Encyclopedia Americana. Sometimes some theorists have considered the Jew a distinct race, although this has no factual basis. I could go on and on and on. So basically, Khazar, the Khazarian Empire, was pressured between the Christians coming in one direction and the Muslims coming in another direction. They were a mighty empire, but they had to think quickly. If we embrace Christianity, the Muslims are going to attack us. If we embrace Muslim, uh, the Christians are going to attack. So they adopted Judaism as their official religion of the empire. There were just a few, a very small minority of true, you know, maybe ethnic Jews. Um, but the whole empire adopted Jewish names. I mean, that's why you look at um, Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, the guy's, pardon my friend, I mean, he's whiter than my eyes. Patrick. <laughs> you know what I mean? The guy's why do we think that he's got all this Jewish blood and DNA in him? You know, so these Khazarians, they came down to fill basically Palestine, and they're claiming that they are racial Jews. The chosen but, children, the chosen ones. But, Jeff, here, here's the kicker. In AD 70, all the genealogical records in the temple were burned. In, in a debate... Um, between Michael Brown, who claims to be this Christian Jewish apologist, he was asked, well, what tribe are you from? Because I don't know. Exactly. That's the point. You can't say you're Jewish if you don't even know what tribe you're from because all the genealogical records were burned. So so all these evangelicals that think, oh, you know, modern-day Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy, and these Jews have a right to the land, well, they're not even a Jewish race. Yeah, I mean, they, they haven't even gone past the first step. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. What I've heard and, that is, we can't hear you, Pat. Your mic's not on. Where's Where do the Ashkenazis fit into this? Yeah, so there's Ashkenazis and the Sephardic Jews, right? And uh, I think the Ashkenazi Jews are pretty much those Khazarian Jews. Pat, I don't know, you got a playback, dude. Something's playing back and echoing. You got your, put your head, headphones in, brother. <laughs> Go ahead. He's just like I was telling him earlier. It's like when I have technical difficulties, my children always say, "Oh, Dad, you're so old." <laughs> <laughs> Boomer. Go ahead. No, you're talking about the Ashkenazis. Yeah. Well, the Ashkenazis are, are pretty much uh, connected to to the Khazarian Empire. It's the Sephardic Jews that probably might have a little bit more DNA, you know, kind of sorta to Abraham. I mean, but. How do we really know for certain? Did someone take a DNA sample of Abraham's a long time ago yeah. and they're matching it up? Yeah. I mean, 
there have been genetic studies and every historical anthropology studies, archaeological studies that just show that the, the Jews that are in modern day Israel are not this, you know, pure. They're not the same Jews of, right. of the Old Testament. Well, I mean, looking at it from a, I mean, going back to whatever, just period, the end, how they've used that to kind of hustle the world. And, you know, exactly. you throw in World War II and, of course, the tragedy of, you know, all the people dying, et cetera. But they've kind of used that religious aspect. No, we're the chosen people and just like hijacked a narrative. Like you said, Benjamin, yeah, he doesn't care about any of that. I mean, he's just using it, obviously, for a larger political end. I mean, almost going back to Constantine a little bit, but it is weird how that hustle's worked so well. So interesting that you'll hear on the news, you know, especially on Fox News, which I, I like for the most part, but when they talk about Zionism, it kills me, man. But um, they'll talk about this Judaic Christian ethic. Really? Do you guys even know what the Talmud teaches? Did you know that the Talmud teaches that Christ is, is uh, he's being boiled in his own urine? Did you know that the Talmud teaches that, um, uh, that, in the paradise, in the kingdom, that the Jew will have 2,800 Gentile slaves. You know, and, and President Trump, I bless his heart, he's just surrounding himself with just all the wrong kinds of advisors, advisors when it's Zionists or evangelical Zionists. But, you know, when he moved the capital of Jerusalem, or made Jerusalem the official capital of Israel, he referred to Jerusalem as the eternal city. Well, that that creates a big red flag for me because he's basically parroting Zionist Talmudic theology. Well, I mean, his son-in-law, you know, and his ties with, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu used to stay at the Kushner home. But here's, here's the kicker in the book of Hebrews in the 13th chapter, it says that we are receiving a city that is about to come. And he says, we don't have here an abiding city. So the new Testament authors tell you that the new Jerusalem is is the church the israel of god so jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world he says that his temple is a spiritual temple he says that we are the temple we become sacred space not a physical land you look at paul's writing 66 times paul uses the phrase in christ in christ are all the blessings in the old covenant all the blessings were where in the land in the land so we move from sacred physical space, a physical land that is holy, to now a person. You have to be in Christ where all the blessings are, forgiveness of sins, redemption, and so forth. So um, a lot of these evangelical Christians just do not understand their Bible, and they just I mean, I don't know. How, no, well, and the else. term, you know, before we went on air, the term I've often heard is pimping Jesus. They're out there pimping Jesus. And it's it's yeah. really is painful. I forget who the guy you, you're going to tell me his name here in a second. But, you know, he's kind of gone viral recently because him and his boys in an empty church are throwing the winds of God at Corona. And we're not going to see Corona anymore because we just blew it away with God, divine wind. Like, what? Kenneth Copeland can Kenneth say again. Copeland. It's yeah. so painful. I mean, because I think, you it's know, whether really... I'm completely, like I said, when we first talked, I'm more religious than spiritual, or more spiritual than religious, and I know that probably doesn't make sense to people, but um, it's just, I think people need some of that in their life, I think. I think it does, you know, basically the essence of a lot of it is golden rule, just treat people how you want to be treated, etc. And, you know, those guys just almost ruin it. I mean, for anybody even kind of on the fence who has any sense goes and listens uh-huh. to that, it's painful. It's scary, and they keep making false prediction, predictions on the second coming, 
and people still send them money. I mean, I, that's what is mind-boggling to me. It's like, this guy's a false prophet. He's a known hustler, and you're still sending him money? The 2 I, or 3 a.m. commercials, the water, the little things of water, that, and then people buy. I just... I don't know. I don't know. We're obviously not going to agree on everything because we still have people trampling people for Black Friday sales and New Jordan. So, you know, we definitely, I don't know. We need some Lord. We need some, we need more God in our life. Um, Patrick, are you able to jump in, brother? I turned this on. There seems to be some sort of echo. Is, is it okay right now? Um, it's good now. A little okay, bit, yeah. Good. Don't yell at me, Jeff. I'm getting mad at you. Don't get mad at me. You're the one with 20 years in broadcasting. No, well, I just, hey, look, I'm having some, I don't have an air here to fix my audio situation. Well, just Man, have the earbuds. punch through the screen. <laughs> Throw your earbuds. No, I, I can't, I can't do, I can't do earbuds because that shuts you guys off to our Facebook crowd. So that's the problem. Oh, okay. um, but I, I was, I was trying to jump back, uh, jump in when I couldn't turn my microphone on all the way back to the genetics of, of the Israelites. And, and many claim that um, Ethiopians, a, a small tribe of Ethiopians, uh, were the original who brought the Ark of the Covenant with them and, and a lot of other things. And, um, and they did DNA tests on them. And, and at that time, the scientists who did the DNA test said that they actually were who they said they were. So I just wanted to bring that up, not to go in reverse, but it was kind of an important point I wanted to bring up. But what are yeah. they comparing that blood to? Like you said, did they grab Abraham's blood? Like since it's not a, a race from a genealogical standpoint, how are they? What blood are they comparing it to? I wonder. Michael. Yeah, I would like to know too. It's it's funny when you get into the DNA thing. Um, you know, there have been studies that have taken the DNA from these modern Jews in there, and they, and they prove that they come from Turkey, the Khazarian Empire. That most of them do. I think it's like eighty percent. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that's kind of the definitive factor for me. Now, Zionists, you know, they have their own DNA arguments, and that's above my pay grade. You know, I'm not a geneticist. I don't, I don't really get into that. But that would be an interesting debate. You guys should get, you know, top scientists on on both sides and have that debate. But historically, it's it's pretty much a fact that they're Kazarian. They they came from where, Turkey. Where does the what do the black Hebrews, the black Israelites, fit into this? Yeah, no idea, man. Okay, <laughs> that's all right. I would guess that would be the, yeah the Ethiopians. Right? Well, some of it, or I mean, they kind of do. We're the lost tribe, very similar to what supposed Israelites say. You know, over in that particular area, like, hey, we're the lost tribe, and they it's through slavery. Kind of, we were captured here. Our tribe was here. We were captured, but I, I'm completely talking out of my ass. But I was just curious if you had any idea. About... <laughs> but you know, it just it just gets back to. How can there be a modern Jew when the old covenant is is ended? How can there be a modern Jew when the genealogy genealogy records were burned up? I mean, they just can't. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's he's taking Jesus in Matthew twenty one. He says, talking to the Pharisees, he says, "I'm going to take the kingdom from you, and I'm going to give it to a nation bearing the fruits thereof." Now Peter says that the church is an elect holy nation. The book of Hebrews says that the church is Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Paul in Galatians 6 says that the church is the new Israel of God. So everything that Old Covenant Israel was in the Old Testament that was physical, a physical temple, physical sacrifices, 
a physical land, all of those things, the New Testament writers are saying they're fulfilled in Christ. And the church are is a spiritual temple. We offer up spiritual sacrifices of praise. Um, and we're a spiritual nation. So the king, Jesus prophesied in AD 70, the kingdom's going to be taken from you because you've rejected me. And I've given it to another group, my followers. And they are the new Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So, Pat, you might like this, being a temple guy. In the book of Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem. And it's pictured as a perfect cube. And it's coming down out of heaven to earth. In, t in the temple structure, in the tabernacle or temple, what is the section that is a perfect cube? Well, the 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 uh, cornerstone, right? That would be one. But how about the most holy place? The most holy place behind the curtain. So you have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place, and there's right. a curtain that divides it. Well, the most holy place is a perfect square. It's a perfect cube. It had to be measured a perfect cube. The, the holy place is more of a rectangular shape, okay? okay? It's longer. And so that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the most holy place in this perfect cube. So hmm. what that is saying in the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem is this perfect cube, it's saying that the new covenant community is now God's most holy place. We okay. are sacred space now. God dwells in his people. And that's what Jesus said. When the Pharisees said, hey, you keep talking about this kingdom. When's the kingdom come? Kingdom going to come? He says, I tell you a truth. You will not be able to say, see here or see there with your physical eyes, for the kingdom of God is within you. Radical difference between old covenant to new covenant. New covenant, everything is spiritual. Old covenant, everything is physical. So there's a radical, and he radical said, shift. Other ways of saying that, he'd say, split a log and I'll be there, basically, meaning look look inward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. within. Okay. Yeah, your, your whitewashed sepulchers. It's it's what, you know, what defiles a man is what's, what is within him is the issue that Jesus is always addressing. He's always addressing the heart. He's not addressing anything else. It's always the heart that Jesus is addressing. And, you know, you compare Jesus' teaching with, with Islam, I mean, there's such a contrast. You know, here's Muhammad. He's out beheading people, telling people. Now, when he first started out, the first 10 years, he tried the, the peaceful thing. That didn't get him many followers. But when he changed his theology, when he changed his theology to say, hey, um, we can go rape and kill and steal from people, boy, everybody got on board. So Islam... Its appeal is to the lust of man, the depravity of man. Christian, biblical Christianity, Christ, is confronting the depravity of man and showing him there is a better way. Do you see the difference? Uh, one is a sure, very militaristic. In contrast, in contrast, in contrast, you know, to uh, if if I followed Islam, you know, I'd say, you know, that's that's disproven. In the way our women cover themselves, the depravity, the thoughts, <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. You know the way. You know what I'm saying, though. Yeah, and to, who has the highest? I have to. I have to. I have to at least be devil's advocate. Right, and, and that, my counter to that would be: Who has the highest rate of porn in the world? Islam countries. Islamic countries. Yeah, I mean, on the outside, they give this facade that they're this moral, pure 
people. But man, those guys are like watching porn well, like nobody's us, us sitting here at the same time, us sitting in in America where the movies are made can't really uh, sit there and point fingers, right? Oh, I, I agree. I well, agree. and yeah, I mean, you, I mean, not to not to be combative, but I mean, obviously, every none of them are perfect. I think it's how man applies yeah. it necessarily. I mean, look at the Catholic Church. I mean, they've they've had some yeah. serious issues. And even, you know, a lot of the things, you know, conquering the new world, et cetera, under the guise of Judeo-Christian society. I mean, I think they all have a lot of bit of blood on their hands. Well, I believe I believe Islam's got a lot of blood, you know, with their caliphates and following the example of Muhammad. Islam has a doctrine called Sunnah. It's similar to Christianity that we're supposed to live our lives like Christ lived his. But in Islam, you're supposed to live your life based upon the example that Muhammad set for you. Well, ISIS did exactly that. Muhammad went Let's out. See, with with, with Western history. government funding, though. What's that? <laughs> with Western government, with with Western government funding. Though. But like we said, the the, the boots on the ground, those are true believers. Maybe the imams are the people who control them at top, manipulate them. But those people, they they definitely have some true believers sure. in that for sure. Right, and and they're allowed to deceive people about their religion. It's one of their doctrines. That's why you hear so many of them saying, oh, we're a peaceful religion. Well, they're allowed within their religion to lie about it. So when they're in the minority, they lie about it, that they're a peaceful religion, until they become the majority. And then they start in implementing Sharia law. Then they start doing physical jihad. So, what, And the Jews, the Talmud does the same thing. The Talmud isn't exactly innocent. The Talmud has the same exact doctrine. It says that if a Jew tells a Gentile the teachings of the Talmud, they are to be killed. They are to be put to death because there's so much racism in the Talmud and there's so much uh, just just garbage that they don't want that out there. And so the Talmud has a doctrine in there as well where you are to keep the teachings of the Talmud secret and you are allowed to deceive Christians. You're allowed to kill Christians. In the Talmud, it says if you kill a Christian, you're offering God a sacrifice, a well-pleasing sacrifice. I mean, it's very, very violent. And modern-day Christians that are supporting Israel and Talmudic Jews, they don't even know what the Talmud teaches. What's if the Mossad slogan? Like, Mossad slogan is, by way of deception, thou shalt make war, if I remember correctly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and it's, I mean, not to get too deep into it, but I guess that's why we're here. I mean, when you get into some of... Your early, you know, Menachem Begin was one of the leaders of this terrorist group called Ergun and uh, blew up the King Edward Hotel, you know, the uh, just different kind of massacres. I mean, and he goes on to become the prime minister and he's unapologetic. I mean, almost like you said, he embraces the violence he felt he rationalized having to use for his larger political gains. And he's revered as, you know, one of the one of the greatest, uh, you know, prime ministers they've had not to get. You know, Rahm Emanuel and his brother and who he's affiliated with, his dad was a member of this Ergun and was a part of the blowing up the King Edward Hotel. And you just don't hear about it. Uh, the massacre of Dier Yassin. Like, these are just horrible, horrible moments in history. But it's Let weird me, how you don't really hear much about it. And if you do hear about it, you're an anti-Semitic. Right. So let, let me go through some of these things that the Talmud teaches. And you tell me if modern-day Christians, if they really knew this, would support these particular views. Um it's, you know, like I said, when Messiah comes, uh, every Jew will have 2,800 Gentile slaves. It says that the Jews where are... Where is that and, from? The Talmud. Uh, that's from... I, I've got the, some of these I can't even pronounce uh, where they're from. Um, this is from Simeon Hadarsen uh, 56D. 
Um, I've got some more here. Jews have souls and are humans, but Gentiles do not have souls. Gentiles are mere animals uh, created in human form, created for the purpose of serving the Jews. Why is that not racist? That's like the most racist thing I've ever heard in my life. The goyim. And yet, and yet if I say that, I, I'm anti-Semitic? How does that work? You know, I mean, that's just Well, and that's man. also like yeah, Israel now. We are. We're, we're trying to, like Jeff said at the beginning of the show, we're all trying to be adults here and discuss different <laughs> religions and things that are written, right. actually written in their books and just saying them so it doesn't make you uh, a racist for reading out of their book. Exactly. Or, or seeing exactly. what's happening in Israel right now. How is that not an apartheid state? I know that's powerful language, but how is it not completely apartheid when they just disallow people from living in certain neighborhoods unless you're Jewish? Like that's sure. So if if I wanted to to switch my citizenship to be to live in Israel, they would make me renounce my Christianity. I could not. Is that freedom of religion? Well, I mean, we make is modern day Israel is just purely democratic country, just like ours with this Judeo-Christian ethic. No way, man. You've got to dig a little deeper in the, in your study of the Talmud and what they really believe. I mean, the Talmud teaches that if there if a Christian marries a Jew, the marriage has to be. Um, you know, Gentile was was created only to serve the Jew. Um, it talks about the property of Christians they're allowed to take, you know, um, because God created the world for the Jew. So, you know, we can't really criticize Islam for, you know, coming in and conquering these lands and saying, we're going to make you a slave or you convert to Islam because the Jew, you know, kind of came in, stole all this land basically from the Palestinians who may have had maybe more DNA actually to Abraham than these guys do, you know, if you want to play the race card. So it's, it's a lot of this is just really, really backwards for me. And it's, it's like whenever you confront the Quran, you're called an Islamophobe. If you, if you expose the teachings of the Talmud, you're anti-Semitic. And, um, you know, on Facebook, I've had some of my articles taken down when I'm just quoting the Talmud. And and Facebook has has become such a crybaby place where if right. someone just if someone just says I think this is what this guy's saying they don't even take the time to look at it and see you know what is the guy's point right. they just automatically listen to all these these people and it's 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 really bizarre it's shutting down free speech it's dangerous really. yeah it is it is and it's again people just turn a blind eye. You know, they get they just don't want to think for themselves. They want to be told what's going on while educated 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 citizens are much more dangerous to them. Well, yeah, and what but while the reality in front of your face says otherwise, people still rationalize it because they don't want to do the digging or the deep research like obviously you have or we try to do. So yeah, I don't know. Crazy. Yeah, let me let me ask Mike real quick. I want to get this in there because I mean you've you've groin kicked is verbally. You have hit um <laughs> Judaism with a vicious liver shot, and mm -hmm. I'm using fight terms because uh, up next is, uh, I mean, what's your take on, on modern, the modern Catholic Church? I mean, my, my two oldest brothers uh, were molested by a Catholic priest when they were very little, um, and uh, both of those guys ended up committing suicide. I don't have a real—we were raised Catholic for a while and then stopped going, obviously, but I can tell you, you know, from my point of view, I'm not a big fan of the Catholic Church. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the current pope and a lot of the things, his rhetoric, the things that he said, and 
And so what's your what's your take on Catholicism um, from where you're sitting? Yeah. Um, you know, when Jesus was addressing the Jews, he was addressing their traditions, right? He says, you make null and void the commandments of God due to your traditions. So they began esteeming the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud at that time. They began esteeming the traditions, the interpretations of the Torah as on level with the Torah itself. So Jesus has to cut through all of that crap, all right, to get down to what does the Old Testament actually teach. It teaches about him and about the heart. All right. So Roman Catholicism, I see as a modern day, uh, you know, esteeming traditions above the actual text of Scripture. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Paul tells Timothy that a leader of the church has to be married and have children. Why, Paul? Because we, you need to look at this guy's life. How does he treat his kids? How does he treat his wife? Is he humble? Can he accept rebuke? Can he accept correction? Is he a leader in his own home with integrity? If he is, and you've observed him for a long period of time, then consider him for an elder or a deacon. What is Roman Catholicism? Turns that totally upside down. To be the Pope or a leader in the Roman Catholic Church, you have to be celibate. And so what is that? Let's, not, let's, let's not call them celibate, Mike. Let's not call them celibate. They're supposed well, to be anyway. Right. Right. That's a great way to put that, man, because that's that really they're more. And again, no disrespect. It's more about traditions than it is the essence of, of what they're practicing. It's a religion of bondage. It's a religion of works based religion. And it's a religion that puts people in bondage because of its traditions. And that's just a classic example. I mean, if you're in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, you believe you love God. You feel you're called to the ministry. You want to teach the Bible. And then you find out that you can never get married and have kids. I mean, that's total bondage, and it's totally upside down from it what is. the Testament actually teaches. Well, and that's a cool, I mean, I didn't know that statement or that, that uh, Bible verse, but I mean, that makes sense, too. You want to see how a person is normally, not with all their robes right. and not, I mean, nobody really acts like that, and they go back Agreed. and, yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of we sense. Certainly, we, we certainly don't view a priest's or nun's private life. Right. <laughs> And like you said, how you treat how you treat your wife, how do you treat your family, how you treat your kid. I mean, that's a great gauge, in my opinion, rather than like you said, everything's all about, well, you did this, go say X amount of Hail Marys and whatever. I mean, it just it just seems very superficial. Right. And um, getting back to like this holy war mentality in the Crusades, do you guys ever see a movie by uh, Ridley Scott? It's called Kingdom of Heaven. It's got Liam Neeson in it. It's got Orlando Bloom. Check that out. Rent that out sometime. It, it's it's the Crusades, and uh, they're fighting over the literal city of Jerusalem, and you know they both believe that they're fighting for God, and and there's this there's this piece in the movie. I think it's the climax, where the Muslim leader comes out to the the Catholic leader, and they're talking about Jerusalem, and they say, well, what is Jerusalem? And the guy says, Jerusalem is a kingdom of conscience, and he's got it right. Like. The physical city of Jerusalem has nothing to do with Bible prophecy at this point. The new Jerusalem is God's people and God's presence in their in his people. And you know that that's so the Roman Catholics, so Muhammad, you know, when he was establishing his caliphate, 
he would tell to recruit people to come in. He would say, if you join this holy war, your sins will be forgiven. Well, I don't know how Muhammad has the authority to forgive sins, but let's set that aside. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church actually took a page out of Muhammad's book. So when they were trying to recruit uh, crusaders for their holy war, uh, the same the same thing, you know, indulgences would be made, your sins would be forgiven if you fight for God in this war. Again, that's the Knights Templars. Yeah, that's not the kingdom that Jesus said. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have swords and they would be fighting, right? So the Romans come in to take Jesus in the garden. Peter draws the sword, cuts off the guy's ear. <laughs> Jesus puts his ear back on says, dude, you got this wrong. This is not my kingdom, right? My kingdom is within. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not a pacifist. And, Pat, you know this because, you know, through through uh, the Palestra school of fighting, they're just kind of a lineage from you. I mean, when Jesus says, you know, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek, in the Greek, it's like a slap. It's like a woman insulting a man, you know, in the movies. Well, yeah, if someone insults me, I'll turn the other. Go ahead. If you want to insult me, go ahead. That's fine. He's not saying if someone punches you, just let them punch you. So as Christians, I'm not a pacifist. If I see a just war, I'll support it. But I don't see like the Crusades and, and Islam fighting over a literal city as anything of that's got nothing to do with God's wars. Eye for an eye. Is that, that Old Testament stuff there? Yes. When God was, in, God was in a much worse mood, apparently. The Old, the Old Testament was pretty hardcore compared to, <laughs> in comparison to the New Testament. Yeah. Well, he must have had his cup of coffee for the right, New Testament. Right, but, you know, when, 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 when Israel's coming into the land, you got to remember, he says to the Amorites, he says, they have filled up the measure of the— And it's like you're talking to your kids and you finally say, I'm fed up to here with this, right? Well, that's how God was— with the land there. The Amorites were, you know, giving their children to Moloch, you know, like abortion, modern day abortion, and, you know, sexual sins, all kinds of stuff. And it came time to judge them. And in the Old Testament, yeah, there was there was war. There's no question about it. And that's how the kingdom in the Old Testament was advanced through the sword. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant, the kingdom is advanced by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we rule the nations not through a physical sword, but by preaching the gospel. So that's how the book of Revelation ends. The new Jerusalem comes down. The gates of the city are open. The spirit and the bride say, come. And it's the healing of the nations. The nations come into the new Jerusalem through the church preaching the gospel. It's the new covenant kingdom and Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with physical violence at all. Well, I got a slide here, gentlemen, but I have to ask you, and you might have covered this already. Um, thank you again for your time. This has been this has been really cool. When education. do you? When does Mike think he's coming back, or is he coming back, or is it more of a spiritual revival? Is it a physical revival or physical mm -hmm. return? I don't want to put you on the spot and say when's your boy coming back, but I mean, so this, did, did we miss the no, window already? Is, like you said, seventy AD or whatever. I mean, this, this is uh, this is interesting because I tell my wife this all the time. I say, you know, babe, I can spend an hour, two hours, you know, showing people how Jesus coming on the clouds, his second appearing, was fulfilled in the events of AD 67 and AD 70. And at the end of it, they'll ask me, well, when do you think he's coming? 
So, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify. Be sure. Don't feel bad. I wasn't gonna ask. It. Don't. But but. I just wanted to make sure I understood you right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. The Greek one of the Greek words for the coming of Christ is parousia, which just means his presence. Again, in the Old Testament, when God came on the clouds, he wasn't physically seen. Oh, he's coming on a physical cloud. I see Yahweh. I see Jehovah on the clouds. No, the Jew understood that God came in judgment on the clouds. That was metaphorical language. That was symbolic language of God judging them through an invading army. So when Jesus is telling his disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, in their worldview, oh, you're going to come on the clouds when Rome and destroys the temple. That's coming of the Lord. In Revelation 1-7, it says, All the tribes of the land will see him, those whom he pierced. Well, the Greek word for see, we use it in English. If, I'm, if I say, Pat, do you, do you see what I'm saying? What, how am I using see? I'm, I'm saying, I'm using it, do you understand what I'm saying? Right. Do you perceive what I'm saying? So, in Revelation 1-7, when he says, Every tribe of the land is going to see him coming. Yeah, they're, they're going to see when the Romans surround Jerusalem, they're going to know that and understand that Christ came in judgment. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with a 5 okay. five Jew floating on a lunar <laughs> cloud. That let me re not... So let me reword Jeff's questions. I'll just put it th this way. Um, in your belief and your research and your studies, again, the second coming's already happened. So the people that have all the power, all the weapons, and the ability to destroy mankind believe otherwise. Um, they believe the that he has not come or mm -hmm. their prophet has not come. So, you know, what do you have to say to them, and how does this go down? Because they're, they're trying. They're still trying. We can see that happening everywhere around the world. Uh, we can see a monolithic battle for the monetary system, the global monetary system system right now. This is not about a virus. It is about the control of the Earth's monetary system and its resources. So let's not bullshit there. Um, so how do you see this going down? And when when uh, Muhammad and, and Jesus and nobody nobody shows up for the party, but they blew everything to hell already anyway, you know, I mean, come on. Dude. You know, that, so there's a pretty strong, there's strong evidence out there otherwise that all the people with all the power somehow believe this and you don't. I would say you know, like I, I shared with you guys before yesterday, I think it was, you know, Ronald Reagan read Hal Lindsey. And, uh, and Ronald Reagan's mother read Hal Lindsey. And Hal Lindsey taught that the rapture was going to happen in our generation. And if you, if you remember the 80s and the 90s, Jeff, you probably remember this, being a Baptist, you know, Russia was supposed to get invade. Russia was the battle of Gog and Magog. And uh, Reagan was stockpiling nuclear arms because he really believed that, you know, the second coming was going to happen in our generation and that he, as an, a premillennial dispensationalist, was supposed to defend Israel. That's what he thought. So if you get these prophecies screwed up, this is the problem that you're going to have. And I would say to President Trump, you know, you're learning, dude, that, that, the, uh, that the swamp goes a lot deeper and a lot wider. This coronavirus just exposed the CDC, just exposed this little, uh, what's his name, Fauci, Fucci. Fauci. And well, and the World, Fauci World Health and Organization. 
and, and the World Health Organization is being exposed yes. big time oh, also. Wow. Yeah, big time. And the sponsors, the Gates. So he's listening to Dell Bigtree, right? About vaccines and where all this. I mean, he is he is nailing it on this, man. Dell Bigtree is solid on this. Um, right. But but President Trump needs to surround himself with a wide range of opinions, and and so when it comes to theology, he needs to get get away from the Talmudic Jews that are giving him foreign policy instruction, and he needs to get away from John Hagee and these quote-unquote dispensational evangelicals that are always wanting war in the Middle East because they think it's gonna get them raptured. So these are recipes for disaster, and you know, politics is mixed in with religion, so you gotta get the religious part right, hmm. big time. Well, and as we close out, everyone has been speaking about Revelation uh, with Bill Gates, as Pat mentioned, talking about bringing in this biometric nano vaccine or whatever. I mean, I think we've seen different iterations of this, whether it's a social security number or a chip in our credit card, et cetera. We've, we've seen this manifestation of what they've called in Revelation is the mark of the beast. You cannot go anywhere. Yeah. You can't move. You can't buy anything. What, um, what are your you thoughts me, on that? You want me to address the mark of the beast? Yeah. I mean, has that already yeah. happened too? Or is that something that could be coming with something like these pandemics? Or is that more of a metaphorical mark of the beast? Or is it literal? It seems out of order. Mark of the beast, end of the world, all that sort of stuff, right? Okay, so... So, uh, like I mentioned before, Nero Caesar comes out to 666. John tells him, tells his first century audience, calculate the number of the beast. So in Hebrew, their, their number system is related to their alphabet. So Nero is the beast. It says in the book of Revelation that the beast will war against the Christians for 42 months or three and a half years. Nero's persecution of the church started in 64 and ended in AD 68. It was three and a half years, just as the book of Revelation says. Now he says, don't take the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the hand, all right? Now, if you're a Jew, you understand where this is coming from, because in the Old Testament, you were supposed to put the law of God on your forehead and on your hand. Well, a lot of the Jews and them today still literalize that. They put those flackery things on their head. That's not the point. The, the symbol is you're to read God's word. You're to meditate on it. Okay? That's what the mark on the head means. Meditate on God's word. Now, the hand means now live it out. What's in your head that you know you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself, now live it out. Now, in the, in the book of Revelation, don't take the mark of the beast. Don't compromise with Rome. Don't compromise like the Jews did when they handed over Jesus to Pilate and said, we have no king but Caesar. You just did not, you just took away your king and took the mark of the beast by saying you only have one king and it's mm. Caesar. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and here's the thing. Rome, if you acknowledged another king and you didn't accept that, the, that Caesar was the king and God, the son of God, they wouldn't buy or sell to you. And so that's what, you know, they're dealing with. Uh, those first century Christians were being be, being persecuted by the by the uh, Jews, and they were being they couldn't buy or sell from them. They were they would hold funerals if you became a, a Christian, and the Romans the same way. You couldn't buy or sell if you did not do emperor worship. So that's what he's saying. Don't compromise well, your belief. Can I say this, though? And I'm going to pose this to you. This may be 
Uh, we've seen history repeat itself in terms of wars, in terms of monetary systems, and in terms of societies in general. Are we seeing repeated history then because of what you're saying, potentially history repeating itself biblically? Is there a cyclical effect to all of this? There is a cyclical effect, and that's why I think the particular view that I hold to eventually will break that cycle to a degree. Because man's heart's always depraved, so you know you're not going to have some utopia someday on Earth. But I think this will eventually break the cycle. So I'm trying to educate Christians to adopt a more biblical view of Bible prophecy, so that they don't promote war in the Middle East. And yeah. as the church begins, I think, to understand this a little better, they won't be supporting Israel. And they won't be expecting and, and wanting this end-time war. And that's really at the heart of this. And that's but if we, stop, if we stop supporting Israel, wouldn't that bring about the destruction of Israel? I think it would. How, how many Which we don't necessarily want. We, <laughs> we don't want a, destruct, a, a nation to be destroyed, do we? <laughs> uh, I, that's what's classic about Trump. I... I, you know, I voted for him and I support him in a lot, but a lot of it I don't. But uh, how many millions and billions of dollars do we give to Israel? Sure, it's, four it's, trillion it's, or four we billion. Give out billions to almost every nation on the planet. I mean, if there's... the average American, if the average American actually knew that, I think there would be a problem. And how does that fit in with America first? Yeah, I, I don't. Understand. Well, no, and again, we give. If you look, uh, people can look it up on Google. The amount of money average given to each nation. Uh, around the world. I mean, Israel certainly isn't the only one. I mean, there's about 150, uh, I mean, literally. I mean, there's... But they top the nation. list. They literally top the list. Yeah. Israel tops the list, though. Yeah, they do. And yet, they spy on us more than any ally that we have. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, those four guys in that white van, you know, uh, when at 9-11, that's, uh, to me, very curious. Yeah. They're, they're known... Israel is known... For for pulling us into wars, and uh, Trump Trump needs to uh, kind of wise up to that. I think. I think I think I think that Trump is pretty wise. I mean, he's had advisors in there from uh, from old administrations who told him to go to war. You know, when Iran was was hitting us with these supposed attacks, which were uh, in Jeffrey, in my mind, I won't. I maybe shouldn't speak for Jeff, but I felt all, every one of them were false flag attacks, um, just to try and draw us into a war with Iran. So. I think Trump saw through that and, and got rid of the people that he needed to get rid of. But he's still pretty. Here do you have to? I mean, he's surrounded by swamp man. He's. I mean, he's, he's yeah, surrounded sure. by high finance World Bank. I mean, he's he's surrounded by it. And that black. Cube and that's a is, subject. That, and that's a subject we didn't even really touch yeah. when it comes to modern Zionists, the Rothschild dynasty, the monetary system, and how they're connected to that. Here's my concern: if the the Rothschilds studied the Talmud like every night and his five sons became international bankers all right and um so in the talmud when it says that you're to enslave the gentile through high interest rates and stuff like that and in the rothschild dynasty and some of these zionists are connected to these big banks that that to me they're more of a a threat than the islam because that's like in your face this other stuff is kind of like a shadow government of the big bankers behind the scenes, and they're the ones that are kind of pulling the strings. 
that make sense? Yeah. That's kind of what sure. I Sure. At the same time, you know, the supposed the supposed uh, Christians on our side, you know, also in that same boat, you know. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to almost what we were saying about Netanyahu, and I'm not saying this definitively about all politicians. They understand the power of numbers. They understand a lot of people worship. And a lot of these, like you said, these religious leaders they bring into the politics, I think they're just using them. Because I think a lot of these elite up top, they don't necessarily care about any particular religion as far as practicing it. But they know a lot of other people do. And I think they utilize that and manipulate it to, like, you know, get into wars, all, all kinds of stuff. It's just rationalized through whatever just uh, kind of that yeah. kind of manipulation well you know zionism zionism is violent in a lot of ways like um they believe that messiah will not come until there's a war um and so they they like war too just like the evangelicals do but um but there's also communist jews and we always hear about the one to six million jews that died in the holocaust well what about the 66 million Christians that the Jewish communists annihilated? Yeah. We never hear about that. Um, so, you know, Judaism and, and Jews, you know, when it takes the form of communism, which there are a lot of links there, too. For sure. Again, you're, 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 you're marrying religion with politics, and sometimes that's, that's not a good thing. And right, speaking right. about kind of creating this self-fulfilling prophecy, I think a lot of those governments, particularly the Israeli government, I don't necessarily the higher-ups believe in this stuff, but they do know a lot of their people do believe in what they call the Moshiach, their version of the Messiah. And I think they have absolutely no problem with creating certain situations to facilitate this return. And I think that's a lot of what's happening right now. Yeah, I think you hit on it, Jeff. You've got some people that really, really believe these prophecies mm -hmm. and, and are trying to make them come about. And then you have other people taking advantage of the religion and using it to get to their political agenda. For sure. And that's very well said. Well, gentlemen, I got a little girl wanting to eat some lunch and play the board game of life. Mike, this has been awesome and very informative. Pat, good score here, my friend. And it's been awesome talking to you, and it's really nice to meet you. I hope to get you back again and catch up with you, my friend. Yeah, as the as 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 what we are seeing develops and and what we see monetarily as we come out the other side of this, uh, we'd love to have you back on to to discuss some of that some of that uh, prophecy being fulfilled potentially. Amen. Wait, and I I've never heard right, I've you. never heard that that aspect of of Jesus already having come in eighty A.D. or whatever date you said. I've never heard that interpretation. That's very fascinating. I'm gonna have to look into that a little bit more. So very cool. Amen. Amen. Check it out. PTL, ladies and gentlemen, praise the Lord. All right. Take it easy. Thanks, gentlemen. See you guys. Right. Peace and so much love, guys. Thanks, Stay everybody, tuned. For, for listening and yeah. watching. See you. Take care, guys.